Hey everybody and welcome. This is Donovan Bankhead with Springfield Music and I appreciate you dropping in and listening to the podcast. With the Bow Better Bands podcast, my intention is to talk with our fellow educators across the state and share some of their best tips, tricks, and best practices. Also maybe even share some of the things that they're struggling with so that we can help each other out because we're all dealing with so many of the same issues and your and your programs. And us as your school music dealer, want to try to be a resource to help you solve some of these challenges and issues. So uh, anyway, we always appreciate you listening. And if you have ideas or tips or would like to be featured on the podcast, reach out to me and let me know. Donovan at Springfield-Music.com. All right, let's jump in. My guest today is Rob Babel, and Rob has been the band director at Fort Zumwalt North High School for 26 years. There, he leads the Panther Pride Marching Band, the Wind Ensemble, the Symphonic Band, Jazz Band, and Jazz Lab Band, with his two other assistant directors, Patrick Stewart and Matt Schultz. In addition, he assists with beginning an intermediate band at North Middle School. Under his direction, the Fort Zumwalt North Wind Ensemble and Symphonic Band have consistently received the highest ratings at the Misha State Contest, and the Panther Pride Marching Band has been a Bands of America St. Louis Super Regional Class AA champion and finalist and a six-time BOA regional finalist. The North High School Jazz Band has been featured four times at the MMEA Conference and twice at the National Conference for the Jazz Education Network. In addition, the Fort Zumwalt Jazz Band has presented concerts at the Midwest Clinic and is the only high school group in Missouri's history to perform three times at Midwest. Mr. Babel has been recognized as 2016 Missouri Music Educator of the Year, and he received the Missouri Association for Jazz Education Outstanding Jazz Educator Award in 2019. He's also a recipient of the Charles Simmons Outstanding Band Director Award for the Band Director Fraternity Phi Beta Mu, which has been awarded to only 30 Missouri directors. He's also been named the Fort Zumwalt North Teacher of the Year, the St. Louis Metro District 8 Music Educator of the Year, and an O'Fallison Citizen of Achievement. Let's welcome my guest, Rob Babel. I've had a lot of student teachers in the past several years that I talked to them more about kind of how to manage their schedule and, and, and get through kind of this whole thing that we do without being overstressed and that sort of thing. Cause I know from my own experience, my stress level now is way lower than it was in my first several years of teaching. And it, a lot of it is active decisions that I've made in the way I do things now versus the way I used my job back then. I think that's a, a perfect topic. I okay. know just from the conversations I'm seeing educators talk about on uh, social media, mm -hmm. I know that's a hot topic for everybody. And I also see established educators struggling with that right now. And I'm seeing new educators being kind of daunted by the amount of work that it appears to take to do their job and right. specifically even non-contracted work that they <laughs> feel like it's it, taking the sure. job. So I think you sharing uh, your thoughts on that would be super enlightening. So tell yeah. me, I think, I think everybody knows the challenge of it. In some communities, you have an expectation of things that you'll do, and it's very difficult to achieve those expectations without putting in extra time and putting in all your time. But a lot of times also, we just have expectations of ourselves and our programs that it's not that our administration or community is demanding it. We're just kind of demanding it of ourselves. 
and it can make it very difficult to have all that in perspective and keep a balance. Tell me what your experience was like throughout most of your career. Well, my first three years, I taught in a rural school in Pike County, Illinois. Back then, the name of the school was Berry Community Unit School. I taught my first three years there. It's about 20 miles south of Hannibal on the Illinois side of the river. And I was the only band director of any grade. I, I taught, I started, we started the kids in grade four and I taught grade four through 12 and there was not another band director in the school. So it, I, I took it upon myself to take kids for private lessons, to put in extra sectional time, to uh, really do everything that I think if we're in a larger program, we kind of delegate to some other people to help out. But I know I remember I had to get a pep band going for the basketball games and I didn't really have an experienced drummer. So I had to teach drum set, but in order to teach it, I had to learn it. So I, I practiced drums after school for probably a half hour a day for a couple of weeks to try to get my drum set chops up. And then I pulled in the drummer for some lessons and we worked on that. And so I did a lot of that kind of stuff. And I, there was a lot of days I didn't go home until five or six in the evening, but I could do that back then because I was single. I didn't really have anything else on my schedule other than my job. And I yeah. lived in a rural area where I didn't really know a lot of people. So I, I made my job, my life at that point in my career. Right. So, you know, fast forward to the third year at that school. I really got to the point where I was getting burned out, understandably, because I was doing everything and I, and I wasn't going home to take some time for myself and so on. So when I came down to Fort Zumwalt, I've been at Fort Zumwalt since uh, 1998. And I kind of learned that I couldn't do everything and it wasn't necessary for me to stay at school all the time. Now I still did a whole bunch of that kind of stuff in the first, I'm say 10 to 15 years I was at Zumwalt. I didn't get married till I was 38 years old. I'm 51 now. And, and so at that age, when I got married, it really changed my perspective on what I needed to be at work for. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of that is that my wife is an attorney who works way more hours than I do. And, and I think that is probably unique to band directors because usually as band directors, I think we feel like we are the ones that put in so many hours that a lot of times our spouses are the ones that are at home when we're not, but I had to change that way of thinking because when your wife is working a lot of 16 hour days and sometimes not home on the weekends, cause she's preparing for a trial or something like that. I have to be home. I can't not be home. Mm -hmm. So at that point I kind of shifted my thinking and I, I realized that the work would still be there if I left at three o'clock and it was okay because the, the main pressure that was being placed on me was for myself. My principal wasn't telling me you have to get this band ready for something. You have to get a one at contest. The band has to be at a higher level for their next marching competition. That was all me. And I think that's why we do it as educators. The most pressure we feel is the pressure we place on ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I guess it was kind of a forced change of perspective, but I, I rarely stay at school past three o'clock now. And the, the kids still show up and they still play and, and things are still going pretty well with the program and, and the, the level of the program has not dropped off since I stopped worrying about being at work all the time. So I think 
what I, I kind of, you know, what I would kind of share with others with that is that it's okay to go home and take some time for yourself. And, and I think it's probably not going to be as detrimental to our programs as we might think it will be. Do you think that, because <clears throat> you'd mentioned that you were able to cut your time back without seeing a drop of quality. Mm-hmm. Might that be the case because you had gotten that ensemble up to the standard, the level of quality as sort of a cultural norm there, that that becomes their expectation and their ability. And so that yeah. therefore it's almost like turning a flywheel. When we first begin to turn a flywheel, it takes enormous amount of energy and effort if it's a really large wheel. But then once it's moving, maintaining that speed becomes, takes much less effort. So is it just getting it to this level and maintaining that level takes less effort or is there some other trick of efficiency that you've well i, th- I certainly think that 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 has to be a contributing factor because i think we all know once once we kind of get things going in the right direction it's a little bit easier than it was to get them started in that direction i have fantastic assistant directors with patrick stewart and matt schultz patrick's been with me for about 14 years now and matt since i think 2016 and so one of the things I've learned and that has helped me is I've learned to allow the people that are, are working with me and our assistants to, to do the job. And I let, I don't worry about the things I've turned over to them. I don't try to put my nose into it. I, I, I'm not critical of, of something. If it doesn't quite work out, um, the way I, I think it should, we talk about things from time to time, but those are things that I'm, that are, have been taken off my plate. Right. And, uh, call it delegation and that's something that most educators are not able to do. So (laughs) (laughs) it's a challenge. I don't, (laughs) well, you know, I used to be a, I used to be a Rams football fan before they moved. And I remember Dick Vermeil, the coach once saying his best advice for other coaches was to hire good people and let them do their jobs. And, uh, I think that's kind of how, how I view that. That could be a whole topic right there. I'm thinking of a director in particular right now, and I won't use his name to protect the guilty, but that he, he is a very good director, but he struggles to effectively utilize his resources and especially his staff. And, and now that I say that I'm thinking of two directors, but they have, we're all guilty of it at times. Yeah, of course, but they're very capable people themselves, which makes it challenging and they often therefore want to keep a lot of the control and maintain everything. And they have a hard time delegating. In my case, I'm kind of the exact opposite. I delegate and have always delegated very, very well. And this will sound like a joke or false humility, but it's really not. It mainly came from, there's a lot of things that I just, I, I couldn't do and figure out. And it just seemed like people around me clearly could do them better. And so delegating became easy at that point. And then once that works well, you just start to see the value and benefit of it. And, you know, it kind of becomes easy. So delegating to your assistants and using your assistants effectively, if you haven't, if your program lawyers have to have assistance is so critical. How did you learn to do that? Oh, well, I guess, you know, when you start out on your own and you don't have somebody to help you with things, you, you certainly appreciate it when you have that. And yeah, I think part of the, part of being, you know, to, to finding a certain level of success with your program 
is recognizing what maybe you're not as strong in. And there's certainly things that I, I know that I'm, they're not my strong points. And mm-hmm. I like that I have people that I work with that compliment things that I'm not as good at. You know, a, a, a great example is Matt Schultz, who is, he's the youngest of the three of us. And probably not surprisingly, he's the best with the technology. So he sets up all of the, we have iPads that we have for the program through the school district. And he sets up all the technology that goes on them. If, if he weren't around, we'd probably have trouble getting what's on the iPad to show up on the screen in the band room when we're teaching at the middle school. If something doesn't work, we always say, where's Matt? We need him to come fix up. So it's kind of stuff like that. You know, you recognize things that are not your strength. And if you have somebody, if you're fortunate enough to have somebody that knows how to do that and is, and is good at it, it usually, you know, I, I, when I've been on the other end of it and I've been an assistant in, in a program, or I used to be an assistant baseball coach at my school, but uh, there are certain things that I really appreciated were turned over to me and were my things. And I think that if you work with good people, they're going to appreciate that you're turning those things over to them and that they have their things that they can take ownership of. Right. So you found it pretty easy to delegate tasks and likewise for myself, easy to delegate tasks. I recently became aware that I struggle with delegating authority, which when I kind of brought this realization up to my closest team members that I work with daily, they just laughed like, you know, that they were shocked that I was just now realizing this after all these years. And it's a different thing to delegate a task to someone versus delegating authority or ownership to someone. So have you, do you feel like that's something that you're able to do and comfortable do where someone else can totally own the outcome and the result and they have the authority to do whatever, or has that also been a struggle for you as well? I don't think I have an issue delegating authority at this point. I'm sure there was a point where that made me a little nervous. There's certainly after uh, a certain amount of experience, you're not as concerned about proving whether you know how to do something to the rest of the world and to your administrators and and those sort of things. So there's a certain freedom that comes with some experience that allows you to kind of let go a little bit. So I think that's probably played a role in me being fine with turning some authority over. You know, even when I'm watching others who are maybe taking charge of a part of the program, if there's something that I feel would be a helpful suggestion, we'll talk about it afterwards or I'll say something. But Usually I like to let the people that I work with or people that we bring in to do clinics with the program, if there's something that happens within a rehearsal that maybe I wouldn't do the same way, or maybe there's an outcome that didn't go the way that I thought it should. I like talking about it after the fact. I certainly don't want to jump in, in the middle of what that person's doing and, you know, offer a correction in front of students, because I think that can lead to a lack of trust. So I think, you know, just letting, letting people do what they do. And then if you need to talk about it afterwards, you do it, but it's, it's worked out real well for our, our staff. Yeah. Making those corrections to staff in front of students can also undermine, uh, the authority, uh, of those staff members and can maybe make the students even question your faith, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the staff as well. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the one of the strengths that we have as a staff is uh, I think we always appear united 
in the way we're approaching what we do with our students. We, we all see pretty much the, what we're trying to do in the same way. And, and we talk and we're friends outside of our classes. Uh, we see each other outside of school from time to time. So I think that helps too. We we're, we're friends, we get along and, and we're not worried about talking with each other about things that might need to be done differently. Mm -hmm. And, and I appreciate that feedback from them too. You know, if there's something that they see from the assistant position that they say, Hey, are you sure about this? I don't mind that. I, I would prefer them to say something to me because you, you can only see things from one perspective and it's nice to have other people tell you things that they see. Yeah. I think that's something that we see right now that's happening in our country that there's, you know, one of our coworkers told this to me, he's like, you know, there's two types of people. There's those that want to be right. And those who want to have been right. And, you know, if you're one of those people that wants to have been right, you'll defend your position, even if it's wrong to the death. And if you were the type that wants to be right, you don't mind correction and you don't, you know, no one enjoys being wrong, but I'd rather be corrected so that I can be right and, you know, and be accurate than not. And so certainly having people you work with telling you like challenging you on something, asking questions or pushing back. So. I want to go back to something else we were talking about though, because we were talking about the, the time. And so if you have staff, certainly delegating pieces of the job to staff can be a super efficient way of making the most use of your time, which can allow you to either do more or can allow you to spend less time working. But for someone who doesn't have as much staff or doesn't may not have staff at all, mm -hmm. are there things that you can delegate to students? Can you incorporate students to help with some of these things? Yeah, I think so. You know, one of an event that I like to delegate things to students, even to this day, and I, I would certainly do it if I were working alone would be when we get ready for solo and ensemble, because that first of all, solo and ensemble, I've, I've joked with my, with my colleagues that if anything pushed me into early retirement, we would be entering solo and ensemble entries because it's, it's such a large task or can be such a large task, especially if you have a large program, you have 50 plus entries and you're having to order pieces of music and so on. So if, if that were something where I didn't have staff to help, I think I would probably ask the students to take some ownership of making sure that they had the correct pieces. The, the, the thing that I think we all worry about is that our students are going to make a mistake without our guidance. Mm -hmm. And I think. From my perspective, I think it's okay for our students to make mistakes and learn from them. And sometimes that might present an uncomfortable situation. Maybe they show up in the, in the solo and ensemble room without the piece of music that they were supposed to take ownership of, and they get a disqualification and we feel terrible about it, but they'll also probably never do that again. And so, I mean, there are, there are some lessons that I think, you know, we have to allow them to learn. And, right. And we certainly want to set them up for success by giving them maybe a checklist sheet for them to go down. And this is what you're going to need to do before you go in the room, make sure you've looked at all of these things. But at the end of the day, they need to do that. And I think that's one of the real nice things about participating in solo and ensemble is that they, they do have some ownership of it. And it's not something that we, we can't oversee every single student with that. Yeah. So. Yep. That would be one example, you know, teaching, we, we do a lot of our marching fundamentals training when we do marching band by having our section leaders, we've actually changed the 
term section leader to peer mentor now. I can go into why we did that. Right now, we, we are peer mentors that teach a lot of our fundamentals. We do it as a group, but then we break them apart and we have them spend sectional time reinforcing the things that we do. We don't give them a whole bunch of time. It would be like 10 minutes here, and come back together, 10 minutes back, come back together, and so on. But those are some things too that I've, I like putting the students in charge of or having some ownership as a part of what we do. You, you, uh, mentioned that you kind of limit their instructional time where they're in small chunks. Yeah. And I've recently seen more programs do that, but not a lot. I'm still seeing most, if they do a sectional, they're like lengthy sectionals. And now you've got, you know, 20 high school trumpet players that are, you know, in a hallway or over on the 20 yard line for an hour and which can sometimes degrade their effectiveness, especially if high school kids are anything like I was in high school, but sometimes having, it feels like having that short instructional time is it help to keep them focused. Tell me why you've done it that way. That's kind of interesting. Well, for one thing, I think that, you know, kids 15, 16, 17 years old, they don't quite have the skill set yet to fill up an hour rehearsal time with effective rehearsal. And I, I don't know that I ever, even if it's a, a music sectional, I don't know that I've ever sent kids off for more than 30 minutes, at least not now. And, and, and I also try to give them specific things. I want you to work specifically on these measures and here's what I want you to improve within these measures. So when we do like marching fundamentals training, it's usually 10 minutes and then we come back together and then we reinforce what we just went over. And then we'll might introduce something new and we'll send them off for 10 minutes again. And we do a lot of that when it's music. I, I think usually it's for me, I, I do this more with my jazz band. If I want to work specifically, let's say I want to spend extra time with the saxophones. I'll work with them for a half hour and I'll tell the rhythm section, here's two pieces I want you to work on. And here's what I want you to do during that trombones will have a similar instruction, same with the trumpets. And then we'll split off and then we'll come back. But if I go any longer than a, a half hour, I feel like I'm really putting a, a kid who's, you know, they're not a teacher. They're not, they're not used to that. And they certainly aren't a disciplinarian to keep everybody on task, even though it might be some of my best students. That's just a long time for teenagers to, to stay focused and work together. So I, I think shortening it up eliminates the potential for problems. We've all been in, in professional development meetings where there's a breakout session and we're given something that's uncomfortable for us to do. And might, it might be a team building exercise or something like that, that's designed to be a little uncomfortable, but you know, I think generally we want to, we want some parameters. We want some mm -hmm. specific direction on what we need to get done during that time. Otherwise we feel like it's not useful time. So I try to do that with my students. That'd be so much more helpful to tell someone, you know, you're working on this piece and I want you to work on the intro and then work on the solely section and then work on the last 15 measures. Like that would be so much more effective and useful in what someone's supposed to be doing than just a, Hey, go figure this out and see you in 30 minutes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that there was a reason why you went from the term section leader, which I think is still the common term that people are using and certainly everyone's familiar with to peer mentor. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, I would say about three years ago, we were seeing our section leaders, at least not all of them, but a, a fair number of them that were getting a little bossy 
they were, they were kind of hollering a little too much. They were trying to be in charge and, and be the authority figure within the section. And even though we would talk about it, I don't feel like it was always something that they understood that they were there to be a helper and to be a facilitator of things. And so, um, kind of at the suggestion of, of Patrick Stewart, one of my assistants, we changed it to peer mentor and we still catch ourselves saying section leader once in a while, but I think just that we've, we've stated that as the, the title of the position has made it a little clearer to our students that they are not in charge of anything. They're there to help and mentor others. And so I don't know if it's the, the best title. I don't know what the best title would be, but I think we just needed something to reinforce what their role was. And so that's why we did that. You're trying to find a title that in, injects a little bit of humility and a little less hubris into the position. Yes. Are you familiar with the Stanford prison experiment? I don't think so. Essentially it was an experiment done in the seventies, I believe. They took a group of Stanford students and they said, we're going to uh, do a, a week long study of which half of you are going to, or half or two thirds are going to be prisoners. And then the remaining people are going to be the guards and randomly assigning it. So, you know, if you're uh, a, you're this and B you're that. And cause you're essentially all equals and these are all college kids, whatever. And they had to cut the experiment short within, I think they ended it within the first 24 hours or maybe it's first 48 hours because the authority went to the guards heads and it was literally putting people's lives in danger in that short period of time with college edu educated kids at Stanford. And it's, you can read and listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos about it. It's a fascinating uh, study and the results of the study are really fascinating about how power can kind of go to people's heads. And, and in my own experience, I've certainly seen that when I was in high school, my section leaders were very aggressive and mean and kind of snarky. And I just assumed that's how it's done. So when it was my time to be a section leader, I wanted to extract my authority on other people's psyche. And I remember I had went to college and kind of mellowed out in college and realized there was no reason to act like such an asshole. And one of the guys that was in my section in high school came to the same college. He was a year behind me, came to the same college. And when he got in the band and realized I was there and I was the section leader, he said he almost quit because he was like, oh, I'm not doing this again. And he was a amazed that I had like, you know, changed. And I remember feeling very remorseful that I had been a part of such a negative experience for someone, especially over an activity that I love so much. And, yeah. you know, to create this situation where he thought like, oh, I no, I'm not going to do that. And I, I see that a lot. And so I, I think the fact that you're trying to be very intentional with the title, with the, the relationship that you're creating there, I think that's really valuable. And for, for these, uh, mentors, these leaders to act like leaders and not to act like bosses, you're going to have to change their paradigm, which means you're likely changing titles and the language and how you talk and train on it so that they can be effective without being, without them having authority delegated to them over their peers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, when you say that term, exert your authority, I do think that there was some of that occurring under the old title of section leader. And, you know, for what it's worth this past year, which is, I guess the first 
uh, maybe the second year we've used this term, I, I think there's been less conflict within our group than any year I can remember. They're, they just seem to be working together much better. So I don't know if it has to do with the title or not, but it, it certainly seems to at least be something that's reinforce what we want. Well, w- one thing I know without knowing anything about what you're doing, but I, I will make this claim and be happy to, to stick, stake anything on it is that the title isn't what's changing it. It's the mindset behind why you wanted to change the title is what's actually doing it. So I think if one yeah. just went in like, Hey, instead of section leaders, we're calling you guys peer mentors from now on, uh, all right, let's go on. Like, yeah, there'll be no change, but I'm sure there was some preamble about why you were making that change and that you were being very intentional about the language you used around it so that your student leaders would understand that you want them to mentor their fellow students and, and be an asset and ally uh, to them, not be their boss. I'm sure there was quite a bit of discussion that went in. Do you do like a section leader training or meetings or anything like that when you bring on your section leaders and pick them? Uh, the section leader selection process, I have, I've done it a few different ways. Um, most recently I just had them fill section leader interview form, which asks several questions about why they want to do it and how, how they would see it doing the position. I used to do interviews with every student that, that did that, like maybe a three to five minute interview that took a long time. Cause I just had about 30 plus students that were interested in doing it. And with uh, the pandemic, the last year and a half, we got away from the in-person interviews just to, out of, out of a safety issue. So we did, we did it just with the form. So I think I'm, I, I, you know, quite, I, I try to be honest with my students and I tell them about 90% of what I base my decision on has already been placed in front of me before you try out for peer mentor. The last 10% is maybe what you put on that form or the way that we interact when we talk about it. So I think they understand that. And so I, I just have them fill out the form now. And then when we do get together for the first time, we have a meeting with the peer mentors on a day before our first day as we have, and we have a freshman camp, which we do for three afternoons for about three hours to three or four hours each day where they get to experience working with the new incoming freshmen before the rest of the band joins us. And so that's kind of the training for them. Gotcha. That's really fascinating. I think, you know, obviously developing effective student leadership and student participation is a key to being able to make better use of your time and put less time in. I know Scott Lang is kind of famous for sharing a lot of these ideas, talk about using having students set up for marching rehearsals and getting podiums set up and chairs set up and stuff like that, but using them for bus request forms and <laughs> a lot of the yeah. paperwork that happens. And like you mentioned, the solo ensemble form. And uh, I think that's so smart. And I, I do see directors, especially younger directors, I see them like setting up their rooms all the time and they're spending up a lot of time on that, that takes them, you know, they can spend an inordinate amount of time just doing very, you know, menial level tasks that are important. I mean, they need to be done, but there doesn't require four to six years of education and, uh, years of experience to be able to do, you know? So. Yeah. Most, most of the equipment moving is delegated to the students and uh, it's, it's, I, I have to admit, I, I rarely stack chairs or 
or put stands on racks. I'll do it once in a while when there's some stuff left out, but usually that's something that the students are, they take ownership of, and we make sure that that's something they understand as part of what we need them to do. Yeah. Any other things come to mind that's been keys to maintain or continue to improve the quality of your program without requiring more quantity of your time? One of the things that has really helped the overall program in the last, I'm going to say, especially the last 10 years is we've, we've stopped worrying about spending all of our rehearsal time on the pieces that we're preparing, the music that we're going to perform. And we, we spend a great deal of time on the fundamentals of long tones, producing our tone intonation. When we talk about marching band, we spend a great deal of time on marching fundamentals. So a, a typical since we're talking about marching band, a typical marching band rehearsal for us that would be an hour and 45 minutes, uh, which is what we, we have on a typical weekday. We will start at uh, 6.30 in the morning and we'll do a physical warm-up. We might do some body movement as part of that warm-up. We'll do some marching fundamentals training, and then we'll work them on, on those things for about 20 to 25 minutes before we even make the first sound for the day. So we don't even, we don't even play our instruments the first 20, 25 minutes of the, of that rehearsal. And then we'll break into woodwinds, brass and percussion all separated. And we'll spend another 25 minutes separated with that, working on fundamentals with, with them. The brass spends a great deal of time on, on long tones. It's not just the brass, the woodwinds do too, but the brass does a lot of buzzing. And they might not play the first note of a piece of music we're working on for 15 minutes into that. So really before we play anything together as a full band, we've spent an hour doing fundamentals, whether it's marching and music before we get all together. And so that might only leave us about 40 minutes to work on the show, Mm -hmm. but that's how, that's how we work on our, our tone and make sure that we're playing with a quality sound and that we have the marching fundamentals necessary to play well on the field where we're not having to worry about as many things with our physical. Are you maintaining that breakdown of schedule from the beginning of the season through the end, or as you progress through the season, is more time spent on the show and less on the fundamentals? I think we maintain it throughout throughout the year. There, there's It's a rare rehearsal that we're working on any type of show related, you know, sets and charts and that sort of thing before 40, 45 minutes into rehearsal. So, and I would say, you know, when we move more to concert, the first 15 minutes of concert band is working on long tone exercises and scales and corrals. That's something that we have taken as a staff from people that have come in and work with the program. Somebody who is uh, really a, a, a friend of our program, somebody we originally brought in as a judge for our marching festival. His name's Kenny Capshaw. And Kenny is a retired band director in Texas. He, he's in El Paso and he's in the Texas Bandmasters Hall of Fame. And he's a phenomenal trumpet player, but he came in and worked with us for the first time about, I'm going to say about eight years ago. And just the, the warmups that he used with us and the way he spoke with the kids, he has a real calm demeanor and he, he just, we just learned a whole lot from him and we've used that in every aspect of our program. And I think, I know Patrick and Matt would agree that, that he's, he's one of our, 
our best mentors to how we do things the way we do now. What you're describing that is essentially you're setting up a positive feedback loop, right? So you are setting up a system where you're putting time in on fundamentals to create, so you have correct knowledge, behaviors, uh, and habits built. So we stick with strictly just music for now as everybody enters concert band season and jazz season. So we're spending time on fundamentals, tone production, tone quality, scales, arpeggios, chorales. These are the fundamentals of music. Then we are <clears throat> increasing our abilities in those regards. And then when we come to play music, we are better suited for playing that music. And so now playing the music actually continues to enhance our ability. And the next day we repeat that cycle again. And so we're getting this feedback loop again of, of kind of excellence that's happening. But sometimes we can set up negative feedback loops where we sort of do the opposite. We don't spend enough time on the fundamentals. We got people that are struggling with making a quality tone that are struggling with the technique, don't have the appropriate range, don't know how to play within the ensemble and create this sonic fabric we're trying to create. And then we're constantly throwing music at them. And the only way that they can learn it is through beratement and uh, repetition and rote. And, and then it just sets that old cycle of, you know, jagged failure up as well. And uh, so have you ever been on the reverse feedback loop of jagged failure? Have you ever been that? And if so, oh yeah, turn that around to the positive <laughs> feedback loop. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I'll be quite honest. When I first started doing this job, it was my 29th year now. And yeah, I, I remember when I would warm up with the B-flat concert scale, maybe we'd do it in groups of ones, twos, and threes and harmonize it. And then we'd get to play it, you know, <laughs> we'd start working on the show. And that was, you know, I, I'm a saxophone player, so I'm sure, I'm sure my trumpet players didn't really appreciate they, they didn't, sure they didn't know, but they did, they, they didn't appreciate that there was, you know, no blood flow into their chops and they weren't ready to play a lot of the things that we were getting ready to do. And I think I did similar things with the jazz band, you know, with jazz band. Now I, I do a, a long tone warm up that we play 16 counts on every note of the circle of force before we do anything else. And then after we do go from that, we, we outline chords for a ma either major, minor, or dominant uh, chords. We'll do a little scale work. And that's, that's every single day that we do that. And I used to be, I would play out of method books, which were fine. I mean, the, there's some good method books out there, but I was just not providing enough of a warm up for my jazz band before I would then ask the trumpet players to go up to high D's and, and uh, play a bunch of stuff, you know, that was real challenging for them. Mm -hmm. So. You know, to be on the other side of that, yeah, I also remember when I used to do marching fundamentals during band camp, and then you'd start the year, and, and in my mind, we'd done our marching fundamentals. We, we're ready to go. So Didn't we have camp three weeks ago? Yeah, we yeah. stepped in. <laughs> so, the first you know, hour of the first day of camp. <laughs> yeah, nothing against the students back from the late 90s that I worked with, but I, I can't watch those performances anymore because I cringe at what I didn't know or how to go about teaching proper fundamentals to better prepare my students to perform well. So mm -hmm. it's a learning process. I think it is for all of us. And fortunately we've had some wonderful people that have come in to work with our program from outside our area. And, and a lot of people that are from within our area that, that have come in and worked with us. And I'm, I'm always looking for 
new feedback and new input to learn from, because I, I think that's how we get better. I think that's one of the things, you know, for, if one is trying to make that transition, you've got to probably, A, cut yourself some slack. Cause I don't know that the benefits you see off of putting those fundamentals first are immediately apparent and, and the progress you make. But it probably doesn't take that long because you, but you might feel like the first day or a couple of days you do that, you might feel like, man, I don't know that we got as much accomplished in the music because we didn't spend as much time in the music, but I would not at all be surprised to find that after even if as short of time as a few days that you find the focus on the music is improved and therefore the improvements you make tend to be more effective and last. And then. After two weeks, you realize, actually, we're, I think we're maybe a little further ahead than we would have been had we done it the other way. And then after two months, you're like, there's no way we would have been this far ahead had we not, not worked on it. And have you noticed that the trumpet players can now play above the staff without cracking every note and yeah. air biscuits and stuff like that? Well, I think I think where you really notice the difference is on the kids who were maybe on the, the bottom half of your achievers who, who maybe came into your program struggling to play with quality tone. Maybe their technique wasn't fantastic, but because we're spending this time on fundamentals, things that maybe the upper part of your group is doing on their own, maybe they're taking lessons, maybe they're just good, you know, they're better at practicing. They put more time in than some of these other students that you have, but you know, you need, you need all the students to contribute in some way. And so providing a, a routine of fundamentals for these students that probably aren't practicing much, if at all, outside of school, gives them the opportunity to improve. And then, so you see, you see the kids who maybe aren't, aren't your, you know, aren't the top of your group, they're improving and bringing the lower end of your group as far as achievement up. So that, that floor of your achievement is higher and it brings the whole band up. Yeah. Yeah. And some of those kids end up becoming high achievers because they now experience a level of success that they didn't previously. Yeah. Well, I really hope that uh, directors listen to this, that they kind of take that to heart and challenge themselves to try to do that once they resume the school year and to really try to make those, put those fundamentals forward in their rehearsals and improve their overall level of just technical ability on their, on their students' instruments. I think it will help their ensembles perform even better. You, you know, along those lines, I, one thing I, I definitely look at now, I, there is no deadline for us in my mind. Anyway, I, I, I try not to set a deadline of we have to get to a certain level by a certain date. I think what my experience has been recently is that my group's going to progress at the, at whatever level they can progress at. And I think, especially dealing with the pandemic and, and all the adjustments we've had to make with the pandemic, you, you're not upset that it's taking longer to get through things and you, you've, we've all kind of learned to accept that it's going to maybe not be what we're used to. And so in, in seeing that, I think we, I've, I've been able to be a little more patient with my students, with myself, we're going to, we're going to get there. We might take longer to get there, but the overall end result is going to be a good one because we didn't try to rush past what we were ready for. Right. And so we're going to play with a good quality sound and we might not play as many notes as we did you know, when we had more time to put it together, or maybe when the, we had a few more students in the program, but we're going to get there and it's okay to take more time to do that. Yeah. Cutting yourself some slack, I think is, is an important part of it, you know, accepting the results for what they are and just kind of like, Hey, like we're, let's, we'll do the right thing 
everything will ultimately work itself out and it'll be what it'll be and it's going to be okay. Uh, I think that's even an important consideration when you're trying to control your time is just not thinking, you know, I've got to do everything. I've got to do, you know, Rob's over at Ford Zumwalt and I know he's going to, you know, perform again at MEA or Midwest again, or they're going to do this or do that. And if they're working hard, I got to be working hard. Like just take that pressure off yourself. And, and there's a time and season for those things. Like you mentioned, I think if, if an educator find themselves where they're maybe they're younger and don't have a family at home and things like that, and they just want to make their work, their life, and that's their hobby and their interest. That's okay. But if there comes a point where it needs to dial back, like that's totally okay too. And you can still maintain the quality you've had and maybe even improve it because you've put the restrictions of time and availability of your time, which then starts to start creating some more creative solutions. And we see that all the time in business where, you know, and, and educators see this too. We just see a limit of resources, whether it's time or money or whatever. And so we have to get very creative about how we're going to pull something off. And when you can come up with some very innovative solutions that you would have never come up with had you had the, an excess supply of time, money, staffing, or other resources. Yes, absolutely. One other question I wanted to ask you about is just sort of a general kind of check-in on the psyche of both maybe like you and the staff and then specifically with the students, because it seems like as we're in whatever stage we are of the pandemic, that it seems like there's been, I'm hearing from certain people with my wife being a band director, I hear this nightly, that there's been a change in some of the psyche of some of the students and sometimes for the better uh, and that you have some students that are just super grateful to be back in our activity again, but also kind of for the worse in some cases, unfortunately, what have you uh, witnessed in your program? Well, I think, I think what we saw this past semester was students were appreciative to be back doing the activity as I think, um, we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, if, if students didn't have the desire to be in the program, they had the excuse to get out over the past year and a half. And so I feel like at least my experience is that the students that we have are on board with being there and, and doing what we ask them to do. So that's been the, the positive. I, I think that we don't have, there's not students in the program that aren't willing to do what we ask them to do. Otherwise they wouldn't still be doing it at this point. On the flip side of it, you know, I think we've, I think we've with good reason, we've, we've shown a lot of understanding and a lot of leeway to things that maybe we, we didn't used to, as far as like attendance being, you know, you don't feel well, go ahead and stay at home with my students. A lot of them are showing up. We, we didn't used to wear like baseball caps and hoodies in class. And for some reason during the pandemic, we kind of got to where nobody said anything about that anymore. And so like just a couple of weeks ago, we started saying, you know, let's not wear baseball caps in the middle of a rehearsal. And let's put our hoods down and so on. So we can see, our, see each other and communicate a little more effectively. So, you know, I, I think that there's been a certain amount of permitting things that we didn't used to do because we're, we're just trying to be more understanding of everybody and allow for students who might need a little more grace. But now, you know, I have seen, we've gone a little bit further off to that end that than maybe what I would prefer. So I'm trying to to remind the students that there's still some rules and some, some standards that we want to get to. So I think it's, there's been a little bit of both. It's, it's great. I think everybody's back and we're, we're enjoying being able to do this again. And then there's a little bit of, we shouldn't just let everything go. 
Yeah, that's true. I think in, in, in my wife's experience, for sure, she sees a bigger issue in her non-instrumental classes. She mostly teaches band, but I think she has one or two general music classes that she has to teach. I'm not exactly sure. And she's seen more of a problem in those classes. So those are tend to be students that didn't necessarily pick that class necessarily. They just are there for some kind of fulfillment or no other place to be. Do you or any of your staff have to teach classes like that, that are not necessarily electives or kind of a dumping ground for students? Well, as far as uh, myself, Patrick and Mint, we are all doing band classes throughout the day. So, and, and that's by design and many, many years ago, I kind of, I guess, had a, a dialogue with my administration, basically saying, I think the best use of, of what we do as a staff is going to be putting us in front of band students throughout the day. There is a, another member of our staff that does some guitar classes and, uh, helps out with band and he does general music at the, at the middle school, but he's, he doesn't work with the band program as a whole. So it, that's, I think we probably have some of those staff members at a lot of different schools that have roles like that. Uh, and I know some of my colleagues at the other zoom walls have guitar classes that they teach, maybe a theory class, but at least with, with North at zoom North, those classes are, I think our choir teacher teaches a theory class and, and that type of thing. So. Gotcha. That's, that's probably very helpful because for what she's hearing, she's like, like I said, he has a couple of classes that are dumping grounds and the students that she's seen in there are more at risk and more troubled than what she's ever seen in her career sure. before. And at, at the same time, <clears throat> the district's approach for discipline is probably more lax and certainly less effective than it's ever been before. And it's creating a situation that creating student failure and honestly, probably a lack of safety for both students and teachers. And it's creating mass disenfranchisement from teachers that want to be in that situation. And I feel like I'm seeing a fair amount of that also on my Facebook feed. I, I, I continue to see a lot of educators that are thrilled with what they're doing and glad to be back and performing and stuff like that. I like I see a fair amount of posts of people that just sort of feel overwhelmed and overworked, but then I'm also seeing some that are feeling just very burdened and troubled from a lot of the psychological stress that they see. And God, my heart just goes out to him for that. Cause that's a, that's a hard thing for anyone to deal with. And especially someone who's got the heart for people to the point where they would go into education to see this has got to be even more difficult. I try to remind myself that we're fortunate to be in the subject area that we're in because I know a lot of students, at least I have several students who probably would not necessarily make it to the end of high school if they didn't have the band to be something that motivated them to come to school every day. Yeah. Um, and I think we all have probably some students like that. I also am reminded of something that an administrator said to me in my first couple of years of teaching when I was frustrated with my students not, you know, behaving the way I wanted to. And I'm sure I wasn't a great classroom manager at that point anyway. But she said, she said, you know, Mr. Babel, do you realize that your class is the only class in the school where your students begin every day on task? And I thought about it. I'm like, I, I guess that's right. I mean, we start with the warm up every day. We're playing within a couple minutes of when we sit down. 
And she said, that doesn't happen in every class. And a lot of classes doesn't happen for many minutes into the class. <laughs> so we have kind of this built-in behavioral control that if we utilize it correctly, can really help us, you know, make our classroom a positive environment to get things done. So I try to remind myself about that and I try to make sure I'm, I'm taking advantage of it. Yeah. Well, I think you've given plenty of things for people to think about today, about ways that they can make their program a tool for positive advancement and uh, consistent improvement while also creating some balance in their lives. So it's super helpful. Is there anything else that you want to uh, go over or add to this topic? You know, the only thing I would add is that, you know, having been on, I think, on the side of a, a beginning young teacher and and doing band competitions where maybe they didn't go as well as I wanted or, or going to contests when it didn't go as well. And then, you know, more recently having, having some very, very rewarding and what I felt were more successful performances later in my career. I think the thing I would say is that if I could just tell my younger self not to take it so seriously and to not be so worried when it didn't go the way I wanted it to, I probably would have saved myself a lot of stress because I do believe that, that we put a whole bunch of added pressure on ourselves because we want to live up to maybe the mentor teacher that we looked up to when we were younger or the program that we saw in our, you know, in our area that was doing something. So we've all been there to where we didn't quite know how we were going to make it better, but that pressure generally comes from ourselves. And if, if we are patient with ourselves and we ask around for some help, usually better results will follow. I think one has to essentially just disassociate themselves from the outcome. Right. Yes. I mean, I, throughout my playing career, I've suffered from performance anxiety and when it gets at its worst is when I'm playing and I'm very invested in the outcome. Either I think the outcome is very important or I'm playing because I want to impress the people around me or something like, and then it just can get to the point where I can like hardly play, which means I often struggle in like things like auditions and stuff like that, where the very definition of it is you're playing to try to impress and you care about the outcome of it. So always struggle with auditions, generally do great in ensembles and stuff like that. And the only trick I'd ever have would have to just get my head head of like, this just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I make it, doesn't matter how well I play, not, the outcome doesn't matter, doesn't matter what people think, no one's going to care, they're all, my, my performers I'm performing with are more, they're in their own heads about what they're doing, and to dis disassociate yourself from the outcome, and I think for a director, much the same thing can happen as well. Put the effort into rehearsing a quality ensemble, you know, pour, pour your energy into your program, your students, but whatever happens during the performance and it, at the contest, whatever it was, it happened at that moment. Like it's okay. It doesn't mean you're not a good educator. doesn't mean you're not a good person. doesn't mean you're not knowledgeable. doesn't mean you're not effective. doesn't, doesn't mean anything. It's just as yeah, of where you were. I, I remember coming home from a, a marching band festival on a long bus ride where the marching festival didn't turn out the way I wanted to. And this is many years ago, but I remember a band parent, we were at the McDonald's stop on the way home. And he, he noticed my frustration. He came up, sat down, he said, you know, I think it's a minor miracle that you can get 130 kids to all do the same thing at the same time. I think that's a win. <laughs> yeah. And I, I said, well, I didn't really think about it like that, but uh, sometimes it helps they add a little perspective. 
Thanks for listening to the Mo Better Bands podcast. If you have something to share, click the links in the show notes of your podcast app and leave us a message. Or email me directly at donovan at springfieldmusic.com. That's D-O-N-O-V-A-N at springfieldmusic.com. If you'd like to be a guest, would like to recommend a guest or a topic, shoot me a line. Thanks again for listening.